This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Brian Lehrer of WNYC in Manhattan, an NPR member station. Uh, he'll give us his home state view on how Donald Trump's rise in real estate and reality TV developed into political ambition. That coming up a bit later in the program. But first, a number of persistent problems continue to face black Iowans in particular. Finding solutions to those problems is the focus of the MLK Now 2024 conference to be held this weekend, Saturday, January 13th, in Cedar Rapids at the Veterans Memorial Building. We have joining us for the first part of this program two participants at the conference. Michelle Gibson-Webb is the Chief Events Coordinator for Bob Rewards Club. That's a Minneapolis-based nonprofit membership group for black-owned businesses. Michelle, welcome to the program. Hi. Also joining us, good afternoon. Anthony Arrington is with us as well. Managing partner with Top Rank Culture, and that's an executive search and diversity consulting firm based in Cedar Rapids. Uh, Anthony is one of the event organizers. Uh, Anthony, welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Now, I understand uh, Michelle connected you with uh, MLK Now, so I'll start off with uh, you, Michelle. Uh, for those unacquainted with this, how and why did MLK Now start? Okay, well, uh, first offhand, I am the founder and uh, CEO of Bob Rewards Club, and one of my hats is to be the chief <laughs> events uh, organizer and coordinator. So MLK Now is basically a, diff- a, uni- a unique event that we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but also we're discussing the issues of today. And so with Iowa being one of the worst states, we wanted to um, bring this event to Iowa, uh, which we can talk a little bit about the worst states here in the Midwest. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, so it's on recreating black economies is what the title is. Okay, let's talk about that, because you've uh, piqued some ears and interest uh, there by saying Iowa is one of the worst states. Give us some statistics. Uh, Tell us why uh, you feel uh, Iowa is one of the worst states, you're saying, for uh, black people to live in. Well, it's it's not me in a field. It's actually data. So if you, anybody right now, if you want to Google in the worst states for blacks to live in, in the United States, Iowa comes up either second or third, depending on the research. <clears throat> and, that, and, and, and so the, the latest study was done by uh, Wall Street, um, and um, the Pew Research also did some studies on it as well. And so what they did is they, they looked at certain different you know, variables, factors, which are poverty, employment, sustainable generally. Um, They looked at incarceration rates. Mm -hmm. They looked at um, home ownership. And they looked at those things that, you know, how we build wealth, okay? 
And so typically Iowa has ranked, I believe, for the last 20 years or more as one of the worst, you know, states for blacks with incarceration with having, I believe, only 4% of the population there in Iowa is black. And then black people make up 25% of the prisons. Mm -hmm. So that is a very unequal, um, you know, statistic there. And it's not just Iowa, but I'm in Minnesota, as you have mentioned. Uh, we're headquartered in Minnesota, but we are a nationwide nonprofit. Minnesota is ranking fifth now. We have South Dakota that is ranking, I believe, fourth. And then Wisconsin is ranking number one. And so we are all border states, and we feel that we need to build a coalition. It's time to work on these issues. Um, and so it's not just Iowa, but, you know, we're, we're just saying here it's now it's time yep. to seriously let's let's work on the issues. And, Michelle, just just so you know, we've spoken about uh, those items that you mentioned, the disproportionate number of black people in prison in uh, Iowa compared to mm-hmm. white people, uh, the business uh, percentage, the ownership there and uh, uh, and so forth in, in other programs. But is so glad to, to have your take on it and find out how MLK now is tackling it. Um, uh, we'll hand it off to, to Anthony, if you could, because as I understand it, Michelle, uh, you and encouraged Anthony to be one of the event organizers, and then we'll talk with Anthony. So, so uh, uh, Michelle, hand it off to Anthony, and, and why is he in this? Okay. Well, Anthony has been one of our Bob members for about three, four years mm-hmm. now. Yep. Um, and, and so we talked about, we, we were going to be going to Milwaukee, but we're going to Milwaukee May 25th, okay, um, for another event. Um, so, we said the next best thing is Iowa. So our concentration basically right now is in the Midwest, even though we are a national organization. So that's how Anthony, he's been one of our members for a while. Okay, Anthony, uh, we have uh, 26 panelists, I understand, in this Mm -hmm. event on Saturday, six entertainers. Uh, The goal of finding solutions to some of these persistent problems facing black Iowans. Talk more about what you want this event to accomplish. Absolutely, absolutely. First and foremost, thank you for the opportunity to to talk about this. Uh, I want to circle back on on the question you asked Michelle about uh, the three uh, our states, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and you could throw in South Dakota and another. I think it's important for the listeners to understand that that is no coincidence. Uh, you can look up 24-7 black. You can Google 24-7 black to see some of the statistics she was talking about. Um, and, and, and that's no coincidence. Um, and it's important that we that we call that out and we recognize that and we decide collectively how we're going to do something about it. Um, I, I came on board because Michelle called me uh, and said we need we, we need to do this event in Iowa, and uh, I'm a I'm a native of Iowa, and I know what it feels like to be black in Iowa. I know mm-hmm. what our struggles are in Iowa, and I thought it was a no-brainer to do this work here, to have this event, and to begin having some really serious conversations, um, solution-based conversations. Some of them may be difficult. Um, about what is happening in our state and what we can all collectively do about it. So that is what excited me. Um, and having the opportunity to bring it to Cedar Rapids, uh, the second largest state in our, the second largest city in our state was very important. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's going to be uh, an opportunity to bring people from all over the state. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, and Michelle, 
shared with us some of the data that mm-hmm. that uh, we've known for years here, uh, the persistent problems, the challenges faced by blacks in Iowa. But yeah. you just used the phrase, uh, you know, you know what it's like to feel uh, you you know to to be feel uh, black in Iowa, uh, you have a mostly white audience, of course, here in Iowa, as Iowa is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. In your words, Anthony, what does it feel like to be black in Iowa? Give us some some concrete examples of thoughts there. Well, first and foremost, we have a great state. If we're and, and we have an opportunity to continue to be a, a great state. So I say all that, and I preface all that to say that I'm an Iowan. This is where we're from. This is what we do. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Cedar Rapids. I'm a native. I'm mm-hmm. right here in my backyard. Um, but to answer your question, what does it feel like to be black in Iowa? There's this phrase that we call Iowa nice. Um, I'm sure you've heard that before. Of course. Um, that phrase doesn't always work for everybody in the state. And there's a lot of subliminal racism that we see in the state. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, there used to be a time in history where you could say, you know, if you go down south, you know, they'll, you'll know you're black down south. You know where you stand when it comes to uh, race relations. Mm. But you're in the north. You, everything's nice. Well, that's not really true. Mm. And many ways? of us have in grown up experience. Yeah, in what ways, Anthony? Uh, job selection, job, uh, job interviews, uh, conversation in the street. Uh, events such as this. I'll, I appreciate you all for covering this event as the media. But we, uh, there's historically negative media coverage in our state when it comes to people of color. Um, and this event is to show that we have a lot of positive things happening in the state and we're contributing to the state. So when you look at the media coverage, when you look at job participation, labor participation, when you look at conversations around immigration, you will constantly see black people either perceived in a negative light uh, or recorded in a negative light. Mm-hmm. And so I say all that to say that we have a great state and we have opportunity to really uh, highlight the the uh, the growth, highlight the the opportunity, highlights the things that people are doing in the state. But we need to talk about what is hindering us as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple minutes before we go to break. Jump in here, uh, Michelle, again, okay. uh, 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 to, to, to um, follow up on what Anthony just said. Yeah. So I just want to kind of reiterate and add to that. So, again, if we talk about the worst states and what they looked at in the studies, Iowa ranks the lowest, okay? So, for example, we think of Mississippi, right, and Louisiana as being some of the worst states for years for mm-hmm. for just growth, right, achievement, progression, okay? Well, they don't rank in those categories because you – down in the south black people own they tend to own their properties okay mm-hmm. there are more black owned businesses okay which bob that's what we are we're about business development and so because there are more black owned businesses but their incarceration rates are high they don't even hit the list so that's something to think about those different factors that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. i will rank the lowest in those areas and then we talk about employment we talk about upward social mobility in employment. So what type of job are blacks getting in Iowa typically? Mm-hmm. Are they getting those sustainable jobs that could lead to even building wealth with that, you know, employee being able to invest or, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, buy stocks, bonds, that kind of thing. 
So, you know, again, it's about building wealth. And then I hope we're able to talk about in the year 2053, black wealth is supposed to hit zero. Yeah, I want to talk about that in just a moment, Michelle, with you and Anthony here. Wealth, uh, the wealth gap here, part of our discussion with Michelle Gibson-Webb and Anthony Arrington, two participants in the uh, MLK Now 2024 conference this weekend, Saturday the 13th in Cedar Rapids at Veterans Memorial building there in Cedar Rapids. We'll be back with Anthony and Michelle in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, talking in this portion of the program with Anthony Arrington and Michelle Gibson-Webb, two participants in this weekend's MLK Now 2024 conference, a chance not only to celebrate the Reverend Dr. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King Jr., but also to be proactive uh, in addressing some of the persistent problems that continue to face Black Iowans in particular, but we were finding out, um, you know, black people in many states uh, here in the Midwest as well. Well, I want to talk about uh, follow up uh, on our conversation mention of the the wealth gap here. But Anthony and Michelle, I wanted to play since we are celebrating a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, um, MLK uh, Day. uh, I wanted to play a a little bit of a um, a speech. uh, sure. f- fra- of his from 1967 uh, and have you react to it and tie it into uh, the wealth gap and the other sort of business-oriented concerns you have here. I think it ties in very well. One day before his 19th jail sentence and six months before his assassination, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at Grinnell College, of course, here in Grinnell, Iowa, where he delivered a speech Uh, remaining awake through a revolution. Here's an excerpt from that speech delivered on October 29, 1967. The fact is that nobody has lifted himself by his own bootstraps. We must do many things for ourselves. And it's a wonderful thing to say to a man, lift yourself by your own bootstraps, but it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man, that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Unless that is a massive federal program involving billions of dollars to get rid of the blight of our cities, to get rid of unemployment, to get rid of poverty, we are going to see darker nights of social disruption. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967. Anthony, start us off. Your thoughts on the relevancy of MLK, MLK's words for today and what this conference is about. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate that for the listeners. It was, uh, it was a great speech. Um, when you think about what he is, he, he is saying is that you constantly hear these phrases about 
you know, and I'll use employment as the example. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear the argument that, well, why are we having DEI, right? Why are we having affirmative action, right? Like, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, you know. I worked hard. I, I busted my tail uh, to get a job. And until you've lived in the shoes of a black person who's walked into an interview or, or, or been rejected for a position because of the way that their name is pronounced, right, or the microaggressions that you may feel in an employment space, right, until you understand that lived experience, those bootstrap conversations don't make sense because we're behind the gun with opportunity. When you think about the wealth gap that Michelle was talking about, let's move there, and you think about the generational wealth gap, Wealth is built by land, right? So when you historically have not been in the place where you are, have a seat at the table, you don't have relationships with banks because of, the, because of your race, and this happens in real time here in Iowa. When you don't have those opportunities, we all know what compounding means. Two times two is four times two is eight times two. We know what that means, right? So when you're talking about years of not having opportunity for land ownership and, and financing to run businesses or work, that compounds, my, my grandparent, my mother didn't have the opportunity. My mother's mother doesn't have the opportunity. My mother's mother's mother didn't have the opportunity. And that begins to compound. So what Dr. King is saying is that we need massive federal government intervention to assist and wipe away these disparities. The government created the disparities. So the government needs to help remove the disparities. Mm-hmm. So- and what he is saying is that there's opportunity to do that. Yeah, Anthony. Some might say, though, back in the you know late '60s when MLK was speaking there, that there was the Great Society program under President Johnson. Mm-hmm. There have been billions invested here. What would you answer to that? What have they done, and why? Why? Where are those billions invested? That's what I would ask. What when you say that 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 when they say that that yeah, there's been many federal programs, mm-hmm. right? But how much how much money is really in those programs and where 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 is that money going and who's controlling that money and who has those seats at the table to allocate that money? Right. And yeah. so there, there's always there's always uh, there's always a conversation around what the federal government should and should not do. Mm-hmm. But the, the the larger question is, in addition to the money, who is making the decisions and who has the seats at the table and what is the system in place that is allocating funding? Yeah. Michelle Gibson Webb, jump jump in here because you are. Let me tune in here. Yeah, do, please. So so we're talking about building wealth Mm -hmm. here, generational wealth. Just like Anthony said, real estate has been the primary source of building wealth in America. Okay. So if you look at, we have to go all the way back to slavery. Now, if you look at the data from back in Booker T. Washington, I'm sure you're familiar with Black Wall Street. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You look at the data. That was the lowest point in history for Black Americans during segregation. That that was the lowest point for the racial wealth gap between whites and blacks in this country. It's been sleep uh, steadily just creeping away. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's why the movement on reparations is so big right now. That you're hearing a lot of talk about it. Okay, because of that generational wealth that has not been able to trickle down. A lot of the money that you're referring to here has to do with going investments going into programs that did not work. Okay, so for example, black women have a very high 
achievement in getting college degrees, okay? And, however, we still, when we get the college degree, we earn less than what a white male would get, you know, and he doesn't even have even a college degree or just a high school diploma. So there's just that inequity that we have, and it's throughout the whole system. Yeah. Michelle, okay. yeah, what would you say when we're talking about, you know, one of the focuses of this conference, business development, sustainable employment opportunities, what would you say, Michelle, are the chief obstacles in the way of achieving mm. Uh, those goals in that specific area, Michelle. And it sounds like Anthony may want to uh, hop on board with, with with a follow-up. But Michelle, you please first. Well, I think I would, and I think even on a federal level, there just needs to be more attention brought to why are these states the worst states for blacks, okay? And then we need to focus on that. So if that means that some type of reparations program goes to Native Black Americans who are suffering the, suffering the worst because not having that generational wealth because we didn't. You know, there was once upon a time that Iowa did have those smaller pockets mm -hmm. of what we call the Black Wall Streets, okay, in Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, okay? And so, so that's something... There, there can also be investment into what we're doing. So we are a chapter now, and Anthony's actually running that chapter in Marion, Iowa, where we are going to be working with black-owned businesses, helping to create more businesses, and having you know different trainings as well as mentoring. We, you can go to BobRewards.club. We have a host of marketing and sales programs for black-owned businesses to help them stay sustainable. And we want to work on the issues. Invest into something that is tangible that we can really see some benefit for. Okay? Mm -hmm. Stop investing and putting the dollars in areas that have shown not to work. Anthony. Yeah, I would, I would just add to that. Uh, when you talk about, you asked about the barriers yep. um, to, to, to black mm -hmm. growth and sustainable growth. Again, we talked about some of those a little earlier, but... but uh, and when I think about large opportunities, you think about access to funding and, and banks. Um, because historically, we have not had the same seats at the table or the same access to that. That inhibits our ability to get loans, to to get loans, to, to get business partners, to get resources. So that's one example. In the wealth gap, as Michelle mentioned, the, the wealth gap has expanded since the civil rights era. We are still haven't closed that wealth gap, and in many respects, it's expanded. So other so so access to funding is one area. The other area is, is cultural understanding, right? Cultural competency and cultural understanding, societally and in business. So, for example, if I make a mistake in, as a business owner, or I I don't do well as a business owner, the implications of that, because of the color of my skin, and you can just look right now, literally last night, Elon Musk posted on. X, that the IQ of HBCUs are at X level and the IQ of other universities are at Y level and an airline that had a door fall off on it is because it was focused too much on DEI or DIE is what they call it. So you have people that don't have a cultural understanding and they're going to apply that and assume that black people aren't intelligent. 
Mm-hmm. Like you can't have black pilots. So these barriers with people with leverage and voice, that snowballs. And that gives the perception to the Jimmy who's sitting on his couch in rural Iowa with 200 people living there that all black people aren't smart, that we can't fly planes, right? So what does that do? Cult, from cultural understanding, that impacts the manager at name the company in Iowa who saw that news story at home, their lived experience. They're responsible for hiring people. They're responsible for giving away business loans. When you have that mental picture, that mental vision of what we can and can't do as black people, that impacts your decision making as a professional. And that impacts money and opportunity. So those are the barriers that and we see them consistently in the state of Iowa. Okay. Got your message, Anthony and, and, and Michelle. I want to use the final five minutes here uh, to get more people aware of what's going on at this event and excited about this event yeah. on Saturday. Yeah. And we're sure hoping <laughs> the weather cooperates, uh, though the, the forecast yeah. doesn't look great, weather. does it, Michelle and Anthony? I but just it... cannot believe it. <laughs> Why? Why this weekend of all weekends? And oh, I well. say to myself every year we do this event, why did Martin, Martin Luther King have to be born in January. <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't have been born <laughs> in January with this weather. <laughs> well, uh, but uh, it's all good. You know, we have a lot going on at okay. the Coliseum. Do tell. In the Coliseum at the Veterans Memorial Building. We want everybody <clears throat> to come out. Don't think about the weather. Just drive very be, slow. Be safe. We are offering free transportation. Yes. Um, if anybody does need it. You can go right to the website, mlknow.com, and sign up. We have um, two uh, black-owned businesses that are supplying. Uh, it would be a comfortable ride because they have TV screens on the, on the shuttles as well. Uh, you know, you can watch a movie while you, you know, have yeah. that slow drive. But when you get there, it is free to attend. Parking is free. And we have free activities for all the kids that are 16 mm-hmm. and under. We're giving them free food. We have a youth entrepreneur experience. We have about 22 carnival games. So we have like we call a mini carnival we do. We give free gifts to the kids. Um, You know, we've got food vendors coming. We've got just tons of sponsors. If you go to the website, the, the Iowa community really came in to support this event. I can't mention enough of all the great sponsors. Yeah that we have had in the support of the Iowa community. Mm -hmm. So it is an event for everyone to get out, come and enjoy. Uh, Also live entertainment as well. So it's going to be nice. Anthony, add to what Michelle just said. Absolutely. To to the folks listening, we're from Iowa. We're from Minnesota. We're from Wisconsin. We understand weather. We're out here. We come (laughs) out here. This is what we do. We're not worried about the weather. We know it's going to be cold, and we respect that. We certainly... uh, uh, think about that but this is this is our life in this time of year so um, we're excited about it uh, we're looking forward to it and and to reiterate what what Michelle said we can't thank our sponsors uh, and our vendors uh, enough for for stepping up and supporting this event one of the things I always say is you can't just write a check uh, what are you doing for the community and this is an opportunity for us to not only write checks to support this event but what happens on Sunday right What's the excitement and what are the opportunities and what's going to happen on Sunday? So, the, follow, so. the follow through on Sunday exactly. and the next day. So. Right, right. What happens tomorrow? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that website again to check it out, mlknow.com. And as you mentioned, the sponsorships paying 
uh, for the event, uh, which is free. Uh, it includes bus transportation uh, from, what, Davenport, Dubuque, Des Moines, Iowa City, Waterloo. Yeah. Uh, and uh, safely uh, um, in in these weather conditions, uh, of, of course, that will be uh, ob- observed there. What else do we need to drill down on a little bit more uh, in the in the final couple minutes here? I know you know we talked a lot about business. Uh, w- what would you, Anthony, also like to focus on that perhaps we gave a light touch to? Well, just so everybody knows, we've got four tracks, and one we, we didn't talk about. We've talked about wealth building. Uh, we, we're going to be talking about another track about how do you build a, a, a vibrant and healthy community for black people. We're going to be talking about savings and financial planning, et cetera. But one of the things that we didn't discuss that really ties to something you said earlier, what are the barriers, and that's reducing incarceration rates. Yeah, and those uh, are really high in Iowa. Yes, in a state where, where a person that looks like me with brown skin has uh, over seven times is more likely to be arrested for the same charges as a person with white skin who commits the same crimes. And so when we think about the system, that's an area that we're going to be talking about. We've got some experts who understand the the probation system, who understand the incarceration rates and have some solution ideas about how to uh, uh, help solve that gap and help close that gap. So we're excited about that. Uh, We're at the beginning of a legislative session. Are you calling on our lawmakers uh, to give that attention with different policies? Uh, what, What, for instance, Anthony? So probation rates, for example, a probation system. The, the probation system is built on money. I get arrested. I have a bond. Uh, the bond and probation system. I get arrested. I have a bond for X. I can't afford to pay my bond. I sit in jail. Person with opportunity Y doesn't have that. Uh, I don't have access to the same lawyers. I don't have access. When the probationary system is set and I'm placed on probation, uh, I have all these barriers and I can't make one move before I'm put back into the system. There are opportunities to change the rules to that game so that it levels the playing field and it also doesn't create unburdened hardships on people who are just trying to get on their feet after they've paid their debt to society. So we've got some experts who understand, who have some solutioned ideas about how to reduce the probation, how to apply credit, for example, to getting a job. Uh, that knocks off some of your time on probation. How can we do that? Some of this is in front of our legislators right now and we've got some great guests that'll be able to talk about that in more detail. But that's an example of how do, we, uh, how do we rebuild the probationary system and how do we rebuild the bond system that really impacts people who uh, can't afford it or don't have lawyers and money. Typically, that falls on people that look like me for a number of other reasons that we're going to talk about on Saturday. All right. Anthony Arrington, want to thank you for coming into our studio today. Managing partner with Top Rank Culture. That's an executive search and diversity consulting firm based in Cedar Rapids. Uh, As he said, he's an Iowa native, Cedar Rapids native, one of the event organizers. Anthony, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. And find out more. It's a glorious website. Just check it out. MLKNow.com. Uh, Michelle Gibson-Webb, founder, owner, chief events coordinator for Bob Rewards Club in Minneapolis. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. We'll be back in just a moment with more River to River. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with the Iowa GOP caucuses just over a week away. Let's continue with our series, Home State View. We're checking in with journalists uh, in the candidates' home states 
journalists who are well acquainted with the early political careers and also the time before these candidates ran for office. Today, a home state view of the front runner in the GOP race, according to polls here in Iowa and nationwide, former President Donald Trump. Joining us to do that, Brian Lehrer is with us, host of the Peabody Award-winning Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC uh, and NPR member station. Brian, what a pleasure to have you on our program. The pleasure is all mine, Ben. Hello, Iowa. Hello from Manhattan. All right. First of all, before we talk about Trump, briefly tell us about, Brian, how long you've been covering Donald Trump. Well, I've been aware of Donald Trump my whole adult life. We both grew up in the borough of Queens. He's a little older than me. Um, I grew up in a more middle-class area. He grew up in the exclusive Jamaica estates because his father was a wealthy real estate developer. But he was a local celebrity here from the time that I was a young adult. And well before I think he was nationally known, certainly before he went into politics. Mm-hmm. Brian, now take us back to Donald Trump's early days. What was his reputation in New York? Well, just to put a pin in a certain date, he was known here as well as nationally for the TV series The Apprentice. Um, probably worth reminding that that began in 2004. But before that, he was known mostly around New York since the 1980s. So that's a long time, long time before The Apprentice, as a celebrity real estate developer who would also go on radio and TV talk shows and do a lot of, you know, celebrity gossip chit-chat and also sometimes sexual in nature, like that famous Access Hollywood boast from years later about women letting him touch them without asking because he's famous. That sort of thing was in character for the early media, Donald Trump. And he would talk about business as a real estate developer and the New York economy and things like that. And he would sound off on politics. And I think people took him largely as kind of an entertaining scamp, you know, a businessman with a kind of shock jock sort of gift of gab who pushed people's buttons because it drew attention and he liked the attention. He valued himself or he fashioned himself a celebrity as well as a businessman. And that included with whatever he would say about politics. I think people took politics talk from Trump at first as what I might call politically tinged entertainment rather than any kind of serious public affairs commentary. Mm -hmm. I remember in 2015 talking with the um, David K. Johnson, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter. Uh, He wrote a book that goes, um, I guess I was talking to him about that book, The Making of Donald Trump. And and I wonder how far back this trait goes that we have had so much of um, stretching the truth, outright lying, central uh, to Donald Trump's identity, central to his success. I remember talking with David K. Johnston and, and just myself not being very, when he was a new entity here in Iowa, and certainly to me, uh, the anecdote he told about, uh, as a businessman, uh, Donald Trump realizing that, of course, the higher the floor number for the penthouse you are renting or selling, the higher the price you could ask for it. So he just renumbered the floors in the building to raise the price. And and that struck me as just uh, such an early indication of forming your shaping your own reality, the reality that you'd like to have, rather than the one that actually exists. 
that's an interesting anecdote from David K. Johnson that I didn't know. And David K. Johnson, who's a business uh, writer, among other things, probably has a much keener sense of whatever bit of a con man Trump may have been in business in those, day, in those days than the general public did. Um, I think the general public more saw him as a real estate developer without passing too much judgment on that. And with, as I said, a, a gift for gab, you know, and a big mouth, whether you took him as obnoxious or you took him as entertaining uh, or obnoxious, therefore entertaining, you know, whatever that mix was that he was aiming for. But I will say this. I think that stopped being cute in 1989. I'll cite that year in particular. After the rape of a woman in Central Park who became known locally and somewhat nationally as the Central Park jogger and the arrest of five black and Latino teenagers from around there in connection with that crime. And Trump took out full-page ads in the local newspapers criticizing then-Mayor Ed Koch for saying people shouldn't have hate in their hearts. Trump wrote that he wanted to hate muggers and murderers and not try to understand them and analyze them, and that when they kill, they should get the death penalty. The ads had the headline, bring back the death penalty. And it was taken by many as wanting to execute the Central Park Five, though the victim survived the attack. That may have been the beginning of Trump as a seriously polarizing political or quasi-political figure here in New York. Yeah, and tell us the, sort of the end of the story, the next page in the Central Park Five story. Yeah, well, as, as some of your listeners may know, those five teens who had no criminal records got convicted of the crime and served years in prison before being later exonerated by the DA's office and the real rapist being identified, a guy who had a long record as it happens. The teens went from being known as the Central Park Five to the exonerated five. One of them Yusef Salam just got elected to New York City Council this past November representing Harlem, and we now have the irony of him taking out a full-page ad that mocks the Trump one about him from 1989. Instead of bring back the death penalty, the Yusef Salam ad has the same size type headline, but it says, bring back justice and fairness. Mm. And we have the irony, too, of it now being Trump indicted in New York, and Councilman Salam is saying Trump deserves due process, all the due process of the legal system that he says he himself didn't get. Let's make sure we dive into Donald Trump's first flirting with the idea of running for office. Where would you put that? I would say Trump started talking like a presidential candidate as early as the 1988 presidential election cycle. He gave a speech in New Hampshire, which uh, those of you in Iowa probably know is that other state that thinks <laughs> it goes first. Yeah. Uh, so New Hampshire, in the run-up to the primary there, that he said was not a campaign speech, but he did go to New Hampshire when candidates were going and with people outside waving Trump for president signs. And he sounded very much like he does today. That's one of the striking things to me, looking back on it. One quote from that speech, he said, if the right man doesn't get into office, you're going to see a catastrophe in this country in the next mm -hmm. four years like you're never going to believe. And then you'll be begging for the right man. And that's a quote. So he was plugging that kind of 
catastrophe for our country line into whatever year he was talking politics in from that far back. That was 1987 when he gave that speech. And if you think about the context, that was during the Reagan administration when Soviet communism was collapsing and a majority thought Reagan was making America great again. It was even at that time that Trump was using the rhetoric of catastrophe for our country to draw attention to himself. So it was like rinse and repeat year after year. And eventually, as we know from 2016, it caught on. Yeah. Trump's politics have been variously described as as populist, Brian, protectionist, isolationist, nationalist. Uh, I don't know if you can add to that or maybe these these banners, these descriptors don't 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 serve (laughs) to accurately describe the phenomenon of Trump. Yeah, I think probably fairly consistent if you look at that 1989 newspaper ad as kind of a launching point um, for Trump's uh, political, or I say quasi-political because he wasn't running for anything, but he obviously wanted to be known as somebody who was staking out political turf. And it so resembles the centerpiece of his political identity today being what he would describe as pro-police and anti-crime and tough on the bad guys, that sort of thing. Uh, He had mixed politics, though, as a New York businessman. You know, he was cozying up to Democrats as well as Republicans. It depends who was in power. He was close in certain ways with the Clintons. Uh, He had, to the extent that people ever listened to him on the question of abortion rights, he was more pro-choice. And then, of course, turned when he was running for the uh, Republican nomination for president for real in 2015, 2016. But But I will say something else about that. 1988 cycle when he gave that speech um, in New Hampshire. I think people look back on that less as Trump launching a political career than as kind of pioneering the idea of running for president as a business tactic. Mm -hmm. You know, not expecting you'll win, but to bring attention and therefore sales to your brands. It was seen as the next phase of the political attainment. Uh, if you will, that he was doing on radio and TV. Yeah. And it's interesting to think how he was received by the, the, the political pundits, I'll put it that way. As late as 2015 on this program, and we have a variety of uh, political analysts regularly on this program, I remember in 2015, you know, that es- following the coming down the escalator to, uh, to launch his campaign being dismissed without much disagreement as a clown dismissing his candidacy completely. Yeah, and I think what that missed was how much he was tapping into um, a certain fervor against immigration, at very least illegal immigration, uh, certain threads of the culture war um, that he seemed motivated by himself and that people took as very authentic. Uh, I guess maybe it's instructive that the more moderate Republican presidential candidates who came before him, John McCain and Mitt Romney, um, did not touch those buttons in the same way, and they they lost. And at least in terms of motivating a Republican base that felt excluded, of course, he motivated the Democratic base in other ways, but motivating a certain, let's say, culturally resentful Republican base. Um, Trump, though he came from wealth, 
had his finger on that populist button. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump, well known for during his uh, four years in office for busting presidential norms and conventions in do so in doing so. He's, uh, of course, uh, we all know, changed the presidency dramatically. Uh, The norms, we could have a long list of the norms that he's busted, personally profiting from official business, not releasing tax forms refusing oversight, interfering in the Justice Department's investigations, uh, cozying up to authoritarians, and, and just generally, Brian, coarsening the discourse of, at a presidential level. Is that a recognizable trait throughout Donald Trump's life, also before politics? Yes. As I was saying before, his original notoriety in New York was as a celebrity real estate developer, kind of on the talk show circuit. He was on Howard Stern a fair amount back in those days. And, you know, it was a rough and tumble kind of dialogue, thumbing your nose at anybody from individual celebrities who you'd wanted to pick a beef with uh, to people in politics. And what was really selling and was breaking out uh, as kind of shock jock, if you want to call it that, talk, uh, was a world that Donald Trump found himself successful in. And I guess we could argue that he realized that people responded to that. It got a lot of ratings. And so maybe it would build a political audience as well as it built an entertainment audience in the earlier years. Brian Lehrer, how have the views of, of Donald Trump changed there in New York, in his home state, over the years? Is, is there a way to describe that? I think a lot of people in New York who were not inclined to pay much attention to Donald Trump as a celebrity in the earlier days then found him really gross, you know, really disgusting. The things he said early in his campaign about Megyn Kelly, the Fox News host, or John McCain wasn't really a war hero. He's only considered a hero because he was captured. I prefer people who weren't captured, Trump says. Those kinds of things were maybe consistent with a shock jock talk show kind of shtick, and people in New York, by and large, could just dismiss it, Mm -hmm. but then they found it pretty disgusting. And I think we see it. In the, um, in the election results in New York State in 2016, he lost to Hillary Clinton 60% to 37%. And then he lost to Joe Biden by basically the same thing within about a point, 61 to 38, as I've seen the numbers. Uh, in New York City itself, his home city, he only got about 20% of the vote, a few points above, a few points below in the, in the two presidential elections. Uh, so he was obviously somebody who had a certain kind of following in New York, but certainly not most New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, the first former president in U.S. history to face criminal charges, um, over 90 felony charges in these indictments. Um, how are these felony indictments seen in New York? Well, let me put this in the context of the civil fraud case. So that case, that civil fraud case, accuses Trump of defrauding banks mostly out of money by fraudulently overvaluing his properties. We'll see how it turns out. But I think if we ask the question, how does the business fraud case inform New Yorkers' views of Donald Trump the politician, 
We should maybe ask it in the reverse. How does Trump, the politician, influence New Yorkers' views of Trump, the accused business fraudster? Because I think if the state had brought that case before Trump ran for president, to the point of your question, I think most New Yorkers would have shrugged and said, yeah, he always seemed like a bit of a con man, and it would be taken in that light. But now Trump is this polarizing political guy, and so I think people see the business fraud case through that political lens. If they think the system is picking on Trump because he's a right-wing Republican, they don't buy the business fraud. If they see Trump as someone who tried to con the country out of its true election results in 2020, then it's like, of course he conned the banks. That's who he always was. Okay, Brian Lehrer, that's all the time we have for now, but we're sure glad to get your insights for our Home State View series. Brian is the host of the Peabody Award-winning Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC, an NPR member station. Brian, what a pleasure and honor to speak with you. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you, Ben. And that does it for today. Our program today produced by Caitlin Troutman. Also thanks to Alan Black at WNYC. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.